On one occasion, an expert in law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So Levitt, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and banged his boot, <coughs> pouring on oil and wine. When he put the man on his donkey, brought to him an inn, to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into hands of the robbers? The expert in the world replied, The man who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Thank you, Karen. Well, it was about eight years ago, our family was at a friend's house eating dinner, and halfway through the meal, my husband Dan kind of leans over and he said, I'm not feeling very well, something's wrong with my stomach, and he stopped eating, Um, didn't think too much of it, but we finish up with this family, we get in the car, and his face immediately changed, he'd been holding it together for the people, and he just looked at me, he said, I am in excruciating pain, and I think I need to go to the hospital. And you have to understand, I'm one of the least compassionate people on the planet. Um, I was raised in a house where if you're, you know, it's a stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, you know, mentality. And um, if there's no blood, there's no, you know, there's no issue. Um, So I I just keep that in mind as we go through this. Well, we get the kids dropped off with my parents and we drive to the ER at about 11 o'clock at night, which emergency rooms, something happens as soon as it becomes evening, they get worse, right? They get full of people. And so we arrive Dan is doubled over in pain and it is packed. It's about an hour or so before we're finally seen. And they give him this contrast dye so that they can do a scan and see, you know, what it is. You know, maybe it's his appendix is going to burst or something like that. So he comes back out and we're sitting, he's sitting on a hospital bed in the hallway because that's how packed it is that night waiting for the results from this scan. And he looks at me and he goes... I think I'm having a hard time breathing. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Dan, it is two o'clock in the morning. You are a baby. Get over it. You're going to be fine. There's probably nothing. Look at, no one's giving you any attention. Okay, you are so overreacting. Well, a nurse goes by and he stops the nurse. He says, I think I'm... I think I'm having some difficulty breathing. And this woman flies into action. She clears a room, rolls him in, shoots him with an IV and Benadryl straight into his arm because apparently he's allergic to the iodine in the contrast dye. 
And um, which, <laughs> Benadryl in an IV. He was instantly loopy. It was hilarious. I have video that I promised I would never show anyone. Um, but a doctor comes to him and says, you can never have iodine again. It could kill you. This is not, you cannot do this again. Dan and iodine are incompatible. Both cannot exist in the same space. When iodine is present, Dan cannot be. They are mutually exclusive, right? And so today, we are going to be talking about an idea, spiritually, where in order for there to be spiritual thriving, something can't exist. Hurry and spiritual thriving are incompatible. Pastor and theologian Dallas Willard said, hurry is the great enemy of spirituality and you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I hear that and on the one hand, I'm like, hurry? Really, that's the great enemy? I mean, the greatest challenge to our spiritual thriving is hurry. It's not the temptation for power or immediate gratification or consumerism or individualism, all of those things that could lead to what we call sin. But then on the other hand, the more that I have sat with and thought through this thesis of Willard's, that hurry is the great enemy, there's this soul resonance with me. The more I've sat with it, I think I agree that hurry is the great enemy of spirituality. It's the issue underneath so many of the other issues. Violence, exhaustion, chronic anger, this outrage culture that we now live in. Loneliness, burnout, so much of it comes from hurry. Carl Jung, a Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, he said, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. Another therapist commenting on Young's work said, the number one problem that you will face is time. After his over 40 years as a therapist, he says most people are just too busy to live an emotionally healthy and spiritually rich life. There's this thing, it's actually called hurry sickness. It's a real diagnosed sickness and by definition, it is a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness, an overwhelming and continual sense of urgency in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and gets flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Sound familiar to anyone? Maybe I'm the only one. Here's some ways we can self-diagnose hurry sickness. Okay, these are some symptoms. You might have hurry sickness if... You move from one checkout line to another. I was at Costco yesterday and I chose wrong. <laughs> chose very wrong. When you come to a stoplight, if you happen to drive and you count the cars and change lanes, right, in order to get just a little bit ahead. You multitask to the point that you forget one of the tasks. You accidentally put your clothes on inside out or backwards. Or you sleep in your daytime clothes in order to save time in the morning. That's gross, guys. <laughs> I know for me, though, I regularly, I wake up and my first thought is, I don't have enough time. Before my feet have even touched the floor, the pressing thought on my mind is, I don't have enough time to get it all done today. When you think about it, when you ask somebody how they're doing, typically they say, good and busy. 
The West, we are busy, busy, busy. It's no respecter of persons or age or profession. Across almost all lines, we are busy. But busyness has a couple different types. There's, there's busy, meaning your life is full of good things to do. But then there's this pathological busyness where you have not just a lot to do, but too much to do. And so the only way to get it done is to speed up our work, our mind, our body, our rest, even our relationships to a frenetic pace. Professor Michael Zigarelli studied over 20,000 Christians in the West as regards to this, this busyness. And he said that Christians, people who are claiming to follow Jesus, putting him as the Lord of their life, they are assimilating into this pathologically busy life. And so when that happens, God then becomes marginalized. We make less time for, for our relationship with God. And then we have a deteriorating relationship with God, which then makes Christians more vulnerable into adopting secular assumptions about how it is we are to live our lives, which then assimilates us back into the hurriedness and it's the cycle. And he said that pastors, lawyers, and doctors are the worst at this. Which, if you think about it, pastors, lawyers, and doctors, who is it that you want to be able to slow down and pay attention to you? Pastors, lawyers, and doctors, right? Ruth Haley Barton has a list of 10 signs that you're moving too fast throughout your life. Irritability, you're just always annoyed, right? Hypersensitivity, you're offended by everything. Restlessness, when you try to stop, when you try to calm down and rest, you can't. Compulsive overworking, you can't seem to put it away. Emotional numbness, where you have a narrow range of emotions, typically anxiety or anger. No ability for empathy because that takes time escapist behaviors, not just having fun and enjoying some things and having that be a healthy part of your life, but where you're constantly escaping, social media, Netflix, shopping, disconnected from identity and calling, meaning you get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent and you can't differentiate between what's important and what just feels pressing, not being able to attend to your human needs, like sleep, believe it or not, we all need it, Prior to the light bulb, we used to sleep an average of 11 hours a night. Doesn't that sound like heaven, right? Now the average is seven. Hoarding energy, where you think about what's coming up, and you're like, I don't know that I can give energy to you because I might, I might not have enough. And lastly, skipping practices that pull us into relationship with Jesus. Yikes, huh? What each of these authors and psychiatrists and psychologists and so many others are saying this, it's this quote here summed up by uh, Ronald Rollheiser, for every kind of reason, good and bad, we are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, the shopping mall, and the fantasy life that they produce in us than we are in the church. 
pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Hurry and spiritual thriving are incompatible, like Dan and iodine. They can't coexist. And the question is why? Why is it that hurry is incompatible with the love of God and the spiritually rich life? And that finally brings us to our scripture for today. In Luke 10, someone stands up, interrupts Jesus, and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus has come announcing a new kingdom, one that begins now, and he's asked, what must I do to experience that kingdom? And what I expect, partially because I come from a tradition that says there's nothing you can do to earn or to lose the love of God, he doesn't demand anything of us, I expect Jesus to say nothing, just believe in me, but that's not what he says here. He actually gives us something to do. He responds to the man, he says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The man answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Notice there's no timeline here to the live. It's not just about what happens after we die. His kingdom, his eternal life is about a quality of life that starts now. The man doesn't stop, wanting to justify himself, wanting to feel good about himself, and so, I got this on lock. He says, ask Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus launches into this story, which many of us have heard in some way, shape, or form. And I love that this response that Jesus gives, it's actually a response to this man's interruption. In reply, Jesus says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, who is also a religious leader, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, He took pity. He had compassion. Compassion, this empathy that requires time and presence in order to experience. He took pity on him, and he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, both of which are not cheap, both of which are expensive. He's engaging in love in the way with this man that it costs him something. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, so we're at 24 hours now, right? He took out two denarii, which is worth about two days of your salary. So imagine what you make in one day, multiply that by two, and gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. If you notice, if you know anything about the Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other. The religious leader couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He said the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This story is this subversive story, yes, about racism, and showing, helping them see that they have the wrong expectations. What Jesus is suggesting here, and the way that we call it the Good Samaritan to our ears, it would be like saying the Good Taliban, 
or the good ISIS. It just doesn't even compute for them. But this story, Jesus is showing what does it mean, what does it look like to inherit life, to have a life where you are loving God and loving others. It's easy, we look at this story and we think of religious leaders, the priests, and we can kind of mock them and be like, oh, how ridiculous, or how, how evil. But I want you to think about it for a minute. These religious leaders were most likely on a two-week shift. They're traveling between Jericho and Jerusalem. They would be living in Jericho, but then go serve in Jerusalem for a couple of weeks and then come back. And most likely, they would have been coming back with their money, with their, their earnings for the time that they were serving. As priests, they lived off of the tithes of the people, which was not gold, but it would have been food. It would have been animal products. And so these religious leaders, they were Torah observant, meaning they followed the rules that we find when it comes to being clean and unclean and how they can engage with with, um, certain things around them. And it was very clear, if you touch a dead body, you're unclean. So you can imagine as they come by and they see this probably dead body in order to check and have compassion, they would be risking not only themselves becoming unclean and having to go through then the process of becoming clean again and the ritual for that, but then all of the food that they then had that they were taking back to their family could then become unclean as well. And so you can see how easy it might be for these religious leaders in Jesus' story to convince themselves that the cost was just too high. And surely someone else will come and take care of this man. It's a busy road. Somebody's going to come. How many of us think someone else will come and take care of whoever it is? I've got too much to do. It's too costly. I have too, I have somewhere I need to be. How many times have we been on our commute and we see someone in need and we think, oh, someone else will help. There's programs out there, right? If you've worked at all with people in need in the city or organizations, you know you're not supposed to give money. Instead, they say, buy a meal, have a meal, give your time, give your presence. But don't you know, I'm supposed to be meeting with someone to tell them about the way of Jesus and I'm going to be late. I don't have time for that. We don't want to slow down to love in the way that Jesus invites us to. Jesus is calling his followers to slow down and make space for love. Because hurry and spiritual thriving are incompatible. Jesus, he says, love the Lord your God. He affirms that, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. The ability to receive and then to give love. This is the goal of our spirituality. This is the essence. This is what it means then to inherit eternal life that begins now. To be a person who is formed by this kind of love. But hurry sabotages our ability to receive love. At the most basic level, our ability to love others is highly dependent on our ability to receive love. We have to be able to receive the love of God, to contemplate his love, to experience his love, but 
the ability to receive his love is dependent on time. You may know the love of Christ, but in order to become a person of love, you need to be love. Think about it. Soak in it. There was a saying back in the 90s in parenting literature that said love is spelled T-I-M-E. It was super cheesy. But as a parent, I know many of you are parents, we all want to hack the system, right? It's not about quali- you know, uh, quantity time, it's about quality time. But kids don't let you schedule love, right? They can I get some love on Thursday at 3 o'clock? Are you free, mom? Is that going to work out for you? No, they come in and they interrupt you and they say, look at me! Love me right now! And how you respond to their interruption shows the truth of who you really are, right? What comes out in an interruption reveals who we really are. That's what I love about this story of the Samaritan. He has an interruption in his life and he's able to slow down enough to respond to it because clearly at some point he has slowed down enough to experience the love of the Father. Relationships demand time. We know this. In order to be in a deep and meaningful relationship, you have to commit a lot of time to it. Whether it is a marriage, whether it is a parent-child relationship, whether it is a deep friendship, it requires time, and our relationship with God is no different. We can't assume that we are going to have this deep spiritual life where we are transformed if we give it almost no time. To walk with Jesus is to walk at a slow, unhurried pace. And even as I say it, everything in my flesh cringes. Because I know how much I've got to do, right? But I'm believing that hurry and spiritual thriving are incompatible Because hurry sabotages our ability to receive love, but then it also absolutely sabotages our ability to give love. We are at our worst when we are in a hurry. This is when the ugliness comes out, the stress comes out, because we're so consumed with what we have to do, we can't see anyone around us. Anytime I'm trying to get my kids out of the house in a hurry... There is not love coming forth from my mouth. It is, what do you mean you can't find your shoes? Oh my gosh, there's one of them. I just, I don't know. There's not that many places in a small apartment to put your shoes, right? It's not love though that's coming out. It is anger, frustration, impatience, production over people. I don't have time for you. Gotta go. I love Paul's definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13. What's it start with? Love is? Patient. Love is unhurried. Love is not in a rush. Compassion and empathy come from slowing down enough to feel what another person is feeling. And a kind of solidarity. There has been a decline in compassion in our culture over the last few years, and instead there's this rise of this outrage culture. If, if I don't understand where you're coming from, I I am angry with you and I hate you, potentially, especially if it's happening through a computer screen, right? There's no space for empathy to sit with someone who you might disagree with, but try to understand where they're coming from. 
slow down long enough to actually hear what someone else is saying. When people feel listened to and heard, they actually feel loved. This is the beginning of Black History Month. And I would encourage us as a congregation, especially if you are not black, to take this month even and go, how can I listen? What are the stories that I might not understand? How can I love someone who is other than me? Hurry, though, doesn't have time for love, right? Too many other things going on. Like, dislike, on to the next. Hurry and spiritual thriving are incompatible. And so if hurry is really the problem, if it's really incompatible with our spiritual formation and our depth and our growth, what are we going to do about it? (laughs) What's the solution? We're not fixing it all today, guys. (laughs) But over the course of this next series, this is what we're looking at. This is the invitation for you is to come and be present, to say, I want to experience this type of eternal life, this kingdom of God life. How can we slow down and live lives that are positioned to experience and be loved by the Father so that we can then be people who can extend that love to those around us, to actually soak in his presence be transformed and become people of love to this island, to the city, to your workplace, to your families. That is the invitation for you this morning, for us, for us as a community to go, can we be real about this? Can we actually commit to this as a body to take advantage of these classes that we have either today or on Wednesday night to say, no, I don't want to just keep talking about it. I actually want to start living this life where I'm experiencing the love of the Father. And so we're going to finish our service today with communion. Um, And those who are serving communion can come up and, and get the elements ready. But I love this because when I think about communion... When I think about us remembering the body and the blood of Jesus, Jesus gives us, I mean, he gives us his full presence. He is so fully aware of the Father's love. So fully aware of the Father's love. He has soaked in it so much that he is able to extend love in a way that is far more costly than the Samaritan did far more costly than we ever are called to. But because he is so aware of the love of God, so unhurried, he responds almost every interaction you see from Jesus in the Gospels. It's a response to an interruption, right? And he responds with this overwhelming love and affirmation and seeing of people. Like, that's what I want. I want to be able to be so confident of God's love that I can respond to the people around me, that I can see them and extend his love to them. And so, as you come to this sacred table, come not because you must, but because you may. 
come to testify not that you are righteous, but that you sincerely love our Lord Jesus Christ and desire to be his true disciples. Come not because you are strong, but because you are weak, not because you have any claim on the grace of God, but because in your frailty and sin, you stand in constant need of God's mercy and help. Come not to express an opinion, but to seek God's presence and pray for the Spirit. And hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as they were delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 